Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. Welcome back to Unleashed at Work and Home. My guest today is Milena DiMartini, and you probably know about Milena because everybody has heard of her separation anxiety program. Thanks so much for joining me today, Milena. I'm really glad to have you on podcast. I'm so glad to be here, and I appreciate you asking me. I, um, it's so fun to dive into t- topics that are not just simply about, well, it's not a simple topic, but simply about behavior and training, but about, as your title says, showing up for yourself. Yeah. It's it's a very complex world we live in as pet professionals, isn't it? It's it very, really is. Um, and so you're definitely known for separation anxiety, which um, I think is awesome because when I was training, that was the part I liked least. I was I just found it so very stressful, um, but I want to not start there. I want to start with what drew you into the world of behavior at all, and were you initially wanting to be a dog trainer or something else, and, and how did that happen? So start me back. I like starting fairly young. So tell me in fourth grade, what did Milena want to do? So in fourth grade, and it's interesting because I ask a lot of colleagues this question just out of ca- casual sort of conversation. And people of my advanced age uh, have similar responses that when we, when I was young, I wanted to work with animals and therefore I assumed I had to be a veterinarian. Me too. Um, there, was no, <laughs> there was no dog trainer, <laughs> behavior consultant stuff back when I was a kid, or if there was, I certainly did not know about it. Um, and I was working quite a bit, even at a very young age, mostly with horses and with dogs. Um, I started training all the youngsters how to ride and do husbandry with our horses and things like that. So I became a teacher at a pretty darn young age. Um, and I loved bringing people into the world of caring kindly, humanely, and gently um, for our animals. And so as time moved forward, I thought, okay, definitely this whole veterinarian thing. Here I come, here I come. Um, and It was very interesting. And I think this is not uncommon. I I, kind of got the the, a little bit of the jitters and the cold feet. And I thought, oh, I'm not that great in like chemistry and I'm not that fantastic. And, you know, a lot of the things that are going to be required to be a veterinarian. And I began a fun adventure in musical theater. And so that was sort of my next stop. I changed from I'm not going to be a veterinarian. I'm going to be a fabulous stage actress and sing my way through Broadway. And that was really fun in high school and in younger years. And then I got to college 
And I realized that while I was the big fish in the little pond in my high school, boy, was there some real talent when I got into a larger pool and it intimidated me considerably. And I had this moment where I thought, this is what I really love. But I also realized that part of this career might be that I'm waiting tables for many, many, many years as opposed <laughs> to doing what I love. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly after seeing so much talent in, in, in you know, in, in my university. Um, so I went to the very other side of my brain and decided to uh, double major in international economics and international business. So completely wow. opposite, right? I like, how did my brain just go, whoop, let's jump to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> it was so international economics and international business. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Did not see that coming. Okay. So keep going. <laughs> so it, it was, uh, it was very enjoyable to me. I, I really enjoy learning. Uh, and suddenly the whole idea of being in corporate America seemed glossy and shiny and fun and, and exciting and, and quite a challenge. So uh, as I finished my time in college, um, I was emphasizing a lot on statistics and that's really what I loved. But I also loved marketing and, and you know, a lot of different aspects of business. And I was hired at a very young age um, to work for a wine company. Um, at that time, they were wine only. Uh, it was actually just a winery. And then as that industry does, that winery got bought out by a group of wineries that got bought out by a larger wine and spirits company, which got bought out by an even larger wine and spirits company. So, uh, but when I started out, it was just the one winery and I was very grateful to have the education, not only and experience, not only from a business perspective, but also I really enjoyed learning about wine and enology and just meeting these beautiful people that were farmers that loved, loved, loved producing an amazing product. So it was Mm -hmm. a lot of fun. And I very quickly got sort of steered toward doing a lot of the statistical analysis for our sales and marketing department. And I got very into analyzing data and how how can we sort it right, left, up, down, and find answers and clues to what what other directions that we can pursue. So that's what I did for a while and um, really enjoyed it, but came to the realization quite young that can I do this for another 40 or 50 years? Like I'm having fun right now in my early twenties, but can I imagine the level of stress and and number of hours that we put in and and the travel and all the things. And so I made a decision to take a sabbatical and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'll, I'll gloss over this part of the story because it's a bit sad, but when I uh, took this sabbatical, my beloved dog, my first dog as an adult, um, was hit by a car and died. And I retained so much guilt immediately about that because I did not, I was great training him in many other things, but the one thing that I did not know how to train effectively was a recall. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, because of that lack of recall, um, he was he was hit and it was very devastating. And I in that sabbatical decided 
maybe it's not what I'm going to do when I grow up kind of thing, but I need to learn about how animal behavior can be affected positively. And so I stumbled literally, literally into the Academy for Dog Trainers at the San Francisco SBCA, which I was living in San Francisco at the time. I knew nothing about dog behavior. I knew nothing about animal learning. And I just thought, I really entered it with this, like, this will be a fun diversion, uh, maybe a side hobby of sorts. And how old are you about at this time? I was 29, I believe, when I started. Dabbling, 29, okay. And I, it was life-altering, completely Mm -hmm. life-altering. Not just with respect to how much I love dogs and wanted to work with dogs, but life-altering in the sense of, I learned about what motivates any learner uh, mm-hmm. and and really kind of how we all have these inner workings of reinforcement histories, et cetera. Um, and, and it really opened my eyes to looking at the world in an entirely different way. And so I said, okay, see ya, corporate America. I'm going to do this. Uh, and literally after graduating, put out my shingle, <laughs> so to speak, and said, you know, I'm a dog trainer. I'm going to also, I supplemented that with some dog walking and, um, and it was the best thing that I've ever done. Um, but it wasn't very long after I started my dog training business, that separation anxiety became right in the forefront of what I was mm-hmm. doing. And that was, uh, I, I tell people all the time, separation anxiety chose me. I did not choose it. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely like every other dog professional out there that's like, I'll do aggression, I'll do resource guarding, I'll do dog dog, I'll do, I won't do separation anxiety. But through a couple of turns of events, I ended up taking a case which was successfully resolved. And because I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, small community, even though, you know, people, it's an international city, but it is a small community. Um, people were like, great. Now we know who to send our separation anxiety mm-hmm. cases to because none of us want to do it. <laughs> and that's kind of how this whole trajectory began. That is awesome. Thank you for sharing all that. I love the loops, the musical theater to the, the international focus of econ and business and then into the winery. And of course, one goes right from a winery into statistics and, and data analysis, which I, I mean... Like when you say it, I can see the link, but I never would have really thought about the passion that someone working at a winery might be having for statistics and data analysis and how that could make such a big difference. And of course, that made such a big difference for the way you analyze behavior when you move forward with it. That's so cool how you just pulled all the pieces. Well, tell me, I'm I'm making leaps of how I think it could fit, but tell me how the musical theater pieces are showing up in your life today. Where do you see the benefits of having that background in your work? I think two places. One, I can belt out a great tune in the shower every morning. So <laughs> that is still part of my life to, to a small extent. But I think one thing that you learn when you're working in in um, musical theater or just theater is how to be present in in a way that allows you to get your message across and allows you to, and I hate the word perform 
when it comes to like dog training, but, but even just something like this, where we're in a podcast, like I can feel comfortable sharing in a way that I don't know that I would have had I not had that theatrical background. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so cool how we can all sort of look at our life backwards and see, oh yeah, I I can totally connect all the dots and see how I wound up here. But if you had told our 20 year old selves, this is where you'll be, we would have no idea of what kind of trajectory would create that, that it would seem incomprehensible. Very much so. What would 20 year old you think about what you're doing these days? I think 20 year old me would be thrilled because as much as I was passionate about what I did in in the wine industry and several other corporate um, jobs that I worked with, there was always that little, I don't know what it is, but something's missing. Something Mm -hmm. isn't exactly the, the, this isn't exactly my purpose. And I knew it, but I didn't know what else I would or could do. And so when all the events that occurred that sort of led me into the the animal professional world, it suddenly clicked. And I suddenly felt like, oh, okay, this is what there, this is what that little hole somewhere in my heart and in my chest was waiting to have in order to fill it. Um, and so I, I I know that I would be thrilled. Now, would I have believed that I could, you know, put food on the table and gas in the car as a 20 year old, if I had told my 20 year old self that I was going to be a dog trainer, probably not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, you know, I, I can feed my dogs and myself and we're all okay. That is, that is good news. Your 20 year old self is very relieved to hear that. <laughs> the part about the the peace in your heart, you know, the, the sort of clicking in and and feeling right. I think that's really tricky for people because I think I think that we're often taught about like purpose and meaning, like they're big things and they are, but they're also small things in the way things make you feel and, and how you made a difference in, in even small ways for someone else. In, and it's so personal. And so I've had clients who struggle with that they feel like they should be able to clearly define that, you know, what is my purpose? And I think sometimes it's just the feeling, like you said, like sometimes you can feel like this, this is for me and that it's enough for me. Like what you said before is you had enjoyed the previous job, but something was missing and you couldn't pinpoint what it was. And then with the shift, it, something wasn't missing anymore, which doesn't mean that your life is perfect and easy and everything goes smoothly for you. Although I'm sure that is true for you, <laughs> but. Um, oh, goodness, no, but. Yeah. No, no. Oh, I'm so surprised. But that, but having that, whatever that is, makes the hard parts worth it in a, in a different way. And Fair does that feel so. right to you? It does. And, and I love that you bring this up because, um, and this is not to toot my own horn, but I, but instead to sort of honor and hold up all of the folks that make those hard choices, you know, leaving a very well-paid corporate position when I was in my twenties was a risky choice. Mm-hmm. Risky choice, And I didn't know if I would just be dog walking for the rest of my life and taking the occasional puppy and, you know, that kind of thing. I just didn't know. And, but those risks sometimes oftentimes 
are really well worth it in the long run. And I feel like somehow we are, if we are following those, those pieces of our hearts that say, I think there's something else, or I think there's something more, or I want to connect more with people or with animals or with whatever aspect of, of life that is important. It's worth taking those risks. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it's scary and unsettling and and worth it. My One of my sons is doing that right now. He had a job in the DC area last year and a part of him wanted to move to New York City. And he just was like, I kind of want to, I kind of want to experience New York. And he does comedy. So there's a big comedy scene in New York and all the things. And and he decided very practically, well, if my job gives me a raise, I'll stay. And if my job doesn't give me a raise, I'll go. And I was, you know, trying so hard to stay in the lane of not being the mother who tells you what she thinks and just sort of asking him questions and seeing what he was experiencing. And he called one day and he said, I got a raise. And so I'm going to stay in Virginia. And I could hear how disappointed he was, but I didn't say anything because I'm like, just support his decision. He's made a decision. Mm -hmm. A couple of days later, he calls back and he's like, I can't do it. I've got to go. And I'm like, awesome, because that's what your heart was telling you. That's what, you know, um, and, and right now he's in New York and he's figuring it out and he has no idea what this means, but he knew that at 40, he was going to be really sad if he had passed up this opportunity that he was going to feel like that time in my twenties, when I was thinking, should I stay or should I go? I opted for safety instead of what, what I was being called to do, um, as a mother, I was like, I love safety. I'm really fond of safety. I like knowing all. <laughs> um, and I could feel it wasn't the right choice for him to stay. It's a tricky thing. It's like, how how do we help people find that? And of course, it's unique for each person. But to give people permission externally and internally. So societally, if we can allow people the grace to go, look at you, making a choice and figuring it out. Yay. And also internally, where we can say, I am going to make a choice that might worry the people in my family who want things to be stable, but I'm feeling so very strongly called to do it that I'm going to bet on myself that I can figure it out and that one way or the other, I'm going to make enough money to get gas in the car and groceries on the table and and make choices as we go. It's It's a lot. It's a lot. But I admire the people who can do it. I'm not sure I could have done it at that age. I, I love that you bring this up because um, I think the external and the internal are so important. I know for me, um, my parents were so impressed that I was in you know management at a at 20 something years old, particularly in a very male dominated industry. The wine and spirits industry is different now, but at that time, I, there were very few, you know, the only mm-hmm. woman that my company was the human resources manager, you know? And so, I mean, that says something, right? Uh, and they were very proud of me. And when I told them that I was going to just toss it aside and become a dog trainer, that did not bode well with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it did not bode well with them for a good 20, uh, sorry, a good, uh, the first uh, 10 sort of maybe 11 years. It was almost like the mom that asks, when am I going to get grandchildren? It was like, when am mm-hmm. I going to get my daughter back into corporate America again? You know, mm-hmm. but um, they they finally have come around and um, feel feel strongly that they know that I've made a choice that is right for me. 
Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to be supportive sometimes of someone when we have fear for them. So your parents are seeing the corporate job as the safe one, which isn't always true with these buyouts and mergers and all of that. You could easily have been out at any point, but it feels safer. And so many pet professionals are in the business of working for themselves that it it is a challenging thing and and also doing all the things. So in a corporate job, we're often you know, like you said, you were really doing the statistics and, and the marketing pieces. Um, when you're a dog trainer, you might be doing the statistics, the marketing, the client customer relations piece, the scheduling piece, the billing piece. Oh, yeah. And also the training, <laughs> all of the things. That thing. Yes. That thing. Exactly. The, the thing that got me into it. Um, yeah. So it's really kind of cool. So separation anxiety chose you. You didn't choose it but you ran with it. You really ran with it. You you did it not just on your own, having your own method that you did, you know, in the privacy of your work with your clients, but you built a structure that you decided to share. What, what helped you make that decision? What helped you create it beyond just what was going on between you and your clients? Well, I will tell you what that was, but I will also tell you the fear that I had taking that next step to saying, I'm going to share this knowledge with others in the industry was far greater than the fear I had when I left corporate America. Mm -hmm. I was terrified um, because I realized that what I was putting forth was not what we had all been taught, um, Mm -hmm. that there were some differences and nuances and that it was very much applying some important principles to the dog in front of you, as opposed to, well, this is what we do for any separation anxiety dog kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I realized that there, there was going to be a lot of pushback and, and I was terrified. And I really dragged my feet for a long, long, long time. Uh, I worked on my first book. It took me quite a long time to publish that book. And and that's a story for another day uh, too. But um, and then I got to a point where still living in the San Francisco Bay Area, that all all of my colleagues were like, oh, separation anxiety. I, I'll, let me give you her number. Here we go. You know, and I, I got to the point where I had so many clients that it was beyond my ability to, to handle them all successfully and appropriately. And I was really torn. Uh, and I talked to the lovely Veronica Bautel of Dog Biz. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were just having a chit chat. And I said, what am I going to do? I have so many clients and a wait list. And I don't know how or where or in what way I can send them to someone else. Um, and I, I don't, I'm torn. And she said, what do you think about hiring an apprentice? And I thought, that's it. I'm going to hire an apprentice. And then about a day later, I thought, hold on. So we got back on a call and I said, you know, I'm going to fill that apprentice's dance card in a millisecond. And then what do I do? And she said, well, I mean, you could always hire another apprentice. (laughs) And it was like, in that moment, there was this mutual like, oh, well, if I have to train one or two people, maybe I should consider training. If I'm going to put together a a training plan, if you will, for mm-hmm. uh, educating a dog professional on how to work effectively and efficiently with separation anxiety, 
why don't I do a bit of a program so that I can train a couple of more people than just the one or two? And so I thought, I can do this. I can do this. And uh, Veronica, who is so lovely, um, I, I will never forget this. She's she's so supportive. And I remember saying, I don't know, this is just desensitization. Like everybody knows how to do this stuff. And she said, mm-hmm. A, curse of knowledge. And she said, B, I'm going to be here to boldly say, I told you so when, (laughs) when you train a few trainers and they're excited about this, you know, different means of, of working with separation anxiety. And I was like, okay, they're probably just going to think it's just same old things. Uh, And so I did a beta test and, and I brought in five um, professional trainers that were interested and I was really shocked. And yes, Veronica did very gently say, I told you so. <laughs> she is lovely. She'll do it gently. <laughs> yeah, she very much will. Uh, and she said, you know, I, I knew that people would be eating it up. Um, and I said, well, I wonder if I should, you know, try to do one more class because I'm sure, you know, now we've got five graduates and I'm sure anything like 10, I mean, that's no, that's way a lot of people. And I don't think anybody else will be interested. Well, that was in 2013. And we now have over 220 some odd CSATs all over the world in just about every hemisphere that one can think of. And so things went in a very different direction than I had been able to believe in my mind. Um, yeah. And it wasn't until I had uh, graduated maybe 10 or 20 uh, CSATs that I finally felt like, oh, maybe I can let go of that fear a little bit, maybe just a little bit, um, because I was no longer this little island of Ibiza out there saying, this is how we do it. And uh, now there were others that were saying, we've done it this way and were we realized success and i thought ah oh, replication replication is important right in order to determine um effectiveness of any any methodology or intervention um and so i i did start to gain more confidence at that point thank you for sharing all the pieces of that because from the outside looking in people people don't know how much fear someone has taking those steps and it's easy to do the, you know, like, well, of course you felt confident about that because you had this entire program, you know? So even after you've done it once or twice, like, of course you'd be confident, but that's not how real life works. (laughs) Real life takes us quite a few times sometimes of doing something and succeeding and, and tweaking it and getting a little bit better and getting a little bit better before we finally go like, Oh, I'm sort of a little bit okay at this. And then moving up to, oh, I actually can do this and and really sort of learning to lean in and own our gifts a little bit. And that is a big struggle spot for so many of us. It's totally normal. I mean, based on brain development, we all understand how, you know, our brains are much more interested in what could be bad than what could be good. But for you to share that it took a long time for you to write your book and it took a long time for you to share your program and a long time for you to really believe that it that it was what it is, um, I think that will be helpful to people to know because we all have something that we'd like to do, but we're a little bit afraid. And that's kind of um, kind of becoming a theme here in this particular episode, how, how we're sort of discussing that. It's kind of interesting. 
Um, and it, it really, it's a really interesting concept from the, from the perspective of what are the little tweaks that allow us to do that? And, and for you, you even shared some of the internal and external that Veronica played a big role and, and she, she is an awesome and lovely supportive being. I mean, I, I very much enjoy Veronica and for all of us to have someone like that in our lives, someone who believes in us when we doubt ourselves, it can't be overstated how powerful that is. And also that internal piece of like, I'm scared, but I still want to. That piece where, where you're kind of like, oh, I don't know. I'm not really sure. And so it took you forever to write a book that needed to come out. Like it kept coming up in you that you wanted to until eventually there was a book. What from the inside helped you most when you were having that fear? Because it's a legitimate fear. Like we've all seen the dog training world go a little crazy when it when it oh, yeah. doesn't agree with something. So for me to be like, oh, it's going to be fine, that would not be helpful. <laughs> so when you had that kind of like, what if they hate it? What helped you keep going from the inside? It's a great question. And, and I I honestly have to think about the answer a little bit. I think I think the thing that I would probably put my finger on that I have always done is let's let's worry about what's going to happen once once the real thing is about to happen. Um so I I was very organized even though I went very slowly with my first book in writing. I was very organized and said this is the hours between this and this on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm going to write. And I, I don't know what's going to come out on the piece of paper, but I'm going to write. And I had a, um, from a very uh, good friend of mine who is an editor, um, I had been given the idea to put up a big whiteboard and have a stack of sticky notes with pretty much with me 24-7. And whenever something came to mind, like, you know what? I should maybe talk about such and such. I would write a, a word or a sentence on a on a sticky note and put it on this whiteboard. And over time, what was really helpful was that I was able to go, okay, that one actually goes really well with this one over here. And this one that I put over on the far left actually makes sense to be towards the later part. And, and it just like the puzzle pieces just organically started to fit together um, because I gave it maybe some space and allowed for it to fit you know in that way um but i will say when it ultimately came down to okay this is going to be published the fear was overwhelming and it was that was really a rip the band-aid off moment i said i i can i can take this manuscript and put it in a drawer and never think of it again or I can just say, I'm willing to face the fact that not everyone will agree with me. And, and I am a person that does not do confrontation well, does not do assertive speaking you know, well, does not like that uncomfortable feeling of someone disagreeing with me. Um, and so it really was a rip the bandaid off moment. And you did. And 227 or however many you said, <laughs> people have been trained in this, which goes out to all the clients of all of those people having an improved experience with their pets because of that, because you were afraid, but didn't stop. 
That's pretty impressive. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. I, I appreciate you sort of pulling that out of me because in a good way, because I I know that particularly speaking with newer trainers, younger trainers, uh, animal professionals, um, there is that fear. And it's even heightened further now with social media because everybody is sort of on display and anybody and anyone can uh, be a keyboard warrior and say that they don't like it the way you're doing it. Um or they don't like the way you worded it, or they don't like the paisley pants that you're wearing in the picture or whatever it may be. Right. And I, I don't always have the best words of wisdom other than, you know, for, for the fears that most of us face other than to say, just keep plugging away, keep plugging away. Mm -hmm. You'll be ready when you're ready. And, and, and there is a point that we are. Yeah. Yeah. And I, love that with my coaching clients because each of them is just plugging away at their things and and they're shifting it they're changing it and they're doing what really matters and it's i don't know i mean that's my bias of course but that's what we're supposed to do in our life is we're supposed to to connect to what matters to me and then do that <laughs> and uh we can get a little trapped in doing what matters to other people and not finding the time and space for what matters to me and and really focusing on that. So I ask all of my guests to share some words and the words that you shared actually tie into that as well. So can you tell us what the what the quote is that you like and um, then tell us a little bit about why it resonates with you? So the quote that I love, uh, and it was a quote that I stumbled across probably somewhere around the time that the book was in public, the first book was in publication. It's a quote by E.B. White, who for many of you are, who are familiar, uh, he was the author of our beloved Charlotte's Web. And the quote says, I rise in the morning torn between a desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. This makes it hard to plan the day. And I love that because I, I would say that is the theme of my life, if, if nothing else. Uh, because I, I I do get these moments and surges of motivation, like we're going to help every dog in the universe and I'm going to make a change and we're going to all be able to, you know, uh, affect the lives and the welfare of not only our dogs, uh, but the people that love them. And, you know, I get so excited about that. And then there are moments that I say, but the wisteria is, is in bloom right now. Mm -hmm. And could I sit near the wisteria for a little while and not have to change the world just right this moment. Um, mm -hmm. And it is a constant conflict. And I think it speaks very much to the conflict that we all feel when it comes to self-care, right? Yeah. Uh, I should be taking a walk today and um, eating good meals for myself, but I want to, or whether we admit that to us or not, I'm compelled to do the things that are work-related or client-focused or things that others are asking or demanding of us. Um, and so I love, I love that there's this sort of play amongst our lives. And I want, and I love the way this quote expresses it because it, it is a choice. It is a choice mm -hmm. to choose to enjoy the world sometimes and other days to improve the world in our small or big ways. 
uh, and it can make it hard to plan the day or the next it hour. Sure can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sure can. But the, the yin yang piece of that is so lovely too, because, because both are valid and important and, and it is hard to plan to have both happen. But if we don't plan, we're likely not to get both. We're likely to get just one. And if we get just one, we're probably not going to actually improve the world or enjoy the world. Like if we if we focus only on improving the world, we're probably not going to feel like we, we did much. And if we focus only on enjoying it, we're going to get to the spot where we get into the self-recrimination of like, I didn't do anything. Um, so to have the yin yang of, I want to improve and I want to enjoy and to make the space for that and allow it. It's beautiful. I love that. And I, I was not familiar with that quote before. I like it quite a bit. It came into your life at a good time. It sure did. And it, it was one of those ones that I saw it while looking for a birthday card for someone. And it was just on a birthday card. And and I picked it up and I thought I needed I needed to read this quote. And I bought the card. I did also get her a birthday card, but I bought the card and it has sat on my bulletin board pinned there for now. Gosh, 11, 12 years. I love that. I love that you were wise enough to buy the card and not just like write the words down or anything. Cause you know, like you have it, you have the, that moment in time is affixed in a way. I mean, you don't know perhaps the exact day or whatever, but there is a card hanging there to remind you of a moment when your world shifted just a little bit because you got a new perspective and that's awesome. Love that. Well, this has been so fun talking to you and I could talk to you all day, but probably I should let you get on with your day. So if people wanted to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? So there's a um, couple of places to seek me out. Easiest probably is to go to my website, which is melenadmartini.com. And um, I encourage people of not just dog professionals or animal professionals, um, but I also encourage just sort of anyone that is interested in the the topic of separation related behavior problems. I have tons of free resources and blogs and discussion topics and podcasts, uh, recordings, uh, and and just things that people can just peruse and learn about about this really important behavior issue um, that that is a that is a welfare concern for many many animals. Um, and I'm also uh, reachable on. Facebook and Instagram, all the social media places. Um, and um, I really love communicating with people and reaching out and talking and sharing ideas and sharing concepts. And so my my door, well, I should say my Zoom room is always open um, <laughs> <laughs> because um, I think that has been one of the biggest gifts that I've received in the dog world that not only have I been able to impact so many dogs lives, but I've met incredible people and I've seen Mm -hmm. the, the, the essence and the fabric of the very real similarities and differences amongst us. Um, And I just love, love meeting and communicating with people anywhere and everywhere. Um, and, and I think I enjoy that just as much if sometimes not even more than doing this, you know, the day-to-day training. I just love, I love having those interactions. And they matter. 
They matter a lot. So thank you for all of that. And all the links to all the things you shared will be in the show notes so people can find them there. And I loved this conversation with you. I really had like eight more questions I was dying to ask. Uh, so we'll save those. As you said, a story for another day. We can we can perhaps do a part two at some point because I always have more things I want to ask. So thank you so, so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us. I really appreciate it, Melena. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun and and I'm definitely game for part two revisited about vulnerability and, 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 you know, learning throughout this process. Excellent. Stay tuned. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.